All right, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn now 1 Corinthians 7 as we continue with our exposition of this tremendous epistle, Paul's epistle to the Corinthians, the first one. I've entitled this particular message, A Theology of the Body. And we continue on that focus, on this theology of the body. If you recall, Paul introduced this theme in chapter 6. And although I would love to do a summary of that, time, of course, does not permit. But in chapter 6, he introduced what I call the theology of the body. And he ended that chapter with an amazing conclusion. This is what he says in verse 19. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own, for you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. That's a tremendous statement. That's a revolutionary statement for the day in which he was living, especially in the historical context of the Corinthians and the kind of lifestyle that they were living. With so much religious prostitution going on in the temples and the prevalence of both male and female prostitutes in the temple. The body was something that was given over to immorality. Now Paul comes in with this revolutionary teaching to his, the people of God. Your body, he says, is the temple of the Holy Spirit. It's a tremendous thing, tremendous truth. Now he applies this principle in the first seven verses of chapter 1. This is why Paul is such a tremendous teacher. He first lays down a spiritual truth, a doctrine. And then he applies it. That's what he's doing here. With the theology of the body, he lays down a basic theological truth. The body of the Christian is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Now, if that is true, how do we use our body for the glory of God? Now, in the first seven verses of chapter 7, Paul applies this truth with special and specific application to husbands and wives with regard to the fulfilling of their sexual privileges within marriage. That's why I've given my message a subtitle. And this is it. How husbands and wives are wired to glorify God sexually. Now, some of you are going to squirm, feel uneasy because we're talking about sexual aspect of marriage. Well, I'm doing this because, guess what? It's in the Bible. All right? And so we're just going on with the flow of the text. All right? How husbands and wives are wired to glorify God's sexual. I'm going to tell you right now, ladies, you're not going to be pleased with this. Men, now you're going to be pleased. <laughs> to a certain degree. If you take it right, everything should balance out, all right? Let's look at the chapter then. Chapter 7, 1 Corinthians. As usual, we'll proceed verse by verse. Now, I'm reading from the King James. Now concerning the things whereof ye wrote unto me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Now, to say the least, this is a most 
problematic verse. It has been for many for a long time. The phrase translated in the King James to touch a woman has been interpreted in different ways. However, I think it's very clear, and you'll see this as we go through, it has nothing to do with fondling or petting. Because I've heard, especially, and sometimes we made me do this, young uh, youth pastors use this verse in trying to encourage young people to watch out how they uh, treat one another. And they go to this words, don't touch. And you don't fondle, you don't, uh, you don't uh, fondle or you don't pet and so on. But that is really not the particular... Pa- now, you, young people, you shouldn't do it, all right? But I'm just saying... I'm just saying that this passage is not the one for that. But this is a figure of speech that many call a euphemism, for it means really to have sexual relations with. And the context, I believe, shows that. And also, there's another important thing to understand as you read 1 Corinthians. Paul is actually quoting or stating the words of the people who wrote to him. In other words, he is stating their belief, not his. He replies to it, but he states their own first. In other words, this verse 1 is not his words or his thinking or his philosophy. It's what they said. And so this is how I paraphrase the passage for us to understand it in the context. Now, with reference to the issue you wrote me about, in which you state, and I quote, it is not good for man to touch his wife. I put it this way. It is preferable for a man not to have sexual relations even with his wife. That's what these people in Corinth believe. Not all of them. In fact, we have a contrast of belief here. We have some people, as we saw in chapter 6, who believe that they could do anything they want with the body because, hey, I'm free to do anything. Now we have another group of people just the opposite when it comes to sexual relations. Hey, not only shouldn't we go to the temples and, and be involved in religious prostitution, hey, sexual relations is wrong altogether. Why? Because it's a physical act. And they believe anything having to do with the body, physical, was evil. Only that which was spiritual was good. And since sexual relations, even with the wife, was a physical act, it was wrong. That was their belief. All right. So in other words, the Corinthians who wrote this letter was informing Paul that their theology of sexual purity had concluded that sexual relations was such a spiritually negative action that it should not be practiced even within marriage. And this entire chapter deals with Paul's response to what we would call the off-the-chain position. All right. In the first seven verses of this chapter, he discusses the issues of sexual relations within marriage. Then he goes on to do the same thing with those who were once married, and then he deals them with those who have never been married. And that's chapter 7, and we'll be going into detail with each of these, but now we focus on the theology of the body in relation to husband and wife relationships. Verse 2, Nevertheless, To avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife, 
and that every woman have her own husband. Now, the nevertheless in the King James here is really a weak translation of the Greek's proposition. The word really is but. And but is a strong contrast. It always gives you the direct opposite of what was said before. I say this, but. You understand? It's a sharp contrast here. Sharp contrast. Paul's response to this is quick and to the point. Also notice, notice the words have and own. Have your own wife, your own husband. Have refers to sexual relationships. And own refers to personal ownership. All right? It's important to see the text here. All of these things are important. Have refers to sexual relationship. And own refers to personal ownership. So here's how I give an expanded, what I call, version of this verse. Wrong! That takes the place of nevertheless or but. Wrong! Sexual immorality is avoided in marriage by the fact that the husband is designed by God to have sexual relations with his own personal exclusive sexual mate. And the wife is to have sexual relations with with her own personal exclusive sexual mate. This is a major purpose for marriage. Sexual exclusivity. That's what he's saying. In fact, to put it in our language, that's what you get married for. One of the reasons. That's what he's saying. All right? Remember now, Paul is describing and defining a theology of the body. The body, which is the temple of the Holy Spirit. He is still working within that context. And he says the body belongs to God. Therefore, glorify God. That's what he says in chapter 6. He's applying that now. The body that we have, he's saying to these Corinthians, was purchased by the blood of Christ. You see, they were saying the body was no good. The body was sinful. That was their belief. Paul is saying, no, the body is indwelled by the Spirit of God, making it a temple of divine worship. It is, in fact, a part of the body of Christ, spiritually speaking. We are united to the head, Christ, and we're united to one another. The body of Christ, the, the body uh, is made up of believers individually, joined together by the Spirit of God. Now, he says, in a marriage relationship, the body of each mate is exclusive means by which each mate is defined sexual fulfillment. That's what he's saying. In fact, those of you married, that's what you promise when you said your vows. Now, you might have forgotten that, but that's what you promise. How does it go about putting yourself from all others? You remember that, eh? It's an exclusive relationship, especially when it comes to sexual relations. That's what Paul is saying here. All right? In fact, Paul is saying here, this exclusive sexual relationship is the essence of marriage. It's the essence of marriage. That's exclusive aspect of sexual relations. It's the essence of marriage. Some people don't like to say this, but when you go even with the government and you get a license, you have a light, you're getting a license in order to have sex, but it's not seen as fornication or adultery. 
You have a license. Once you get married, that's it. That's all Paul is saying here. Outside of marriage, that relationship is sinful and sacrilegious. Paul says, especially for the Christian, outside of marriage, sexual relationship is the sinful and sacrilegious desecration of the temple of the Holy Spirit. It's a desecration of the temple of the Holy Spirit if you are a Christian and you have sex outside of marriage. It's a sacrilegious action. Now notice the emphasis on equality and mutuality in the passage as well. Equality and mutuality. Look at that very carefully. Now this is heavy stuff here. That's why I call it right theology. Because it is right theology that leads to right living. If you don't have right theology, you're not going to live right. You need to have a good understanding of who God is if you're going to have a good life. That's what Paul is talking about here. In other words, as we say in Teleos, orthodoxy leads to orthopraxy. Right doctrine leads to right practice. All right? Now, Paul expands his theology of the body, though, within the marriage relationship even more in detail. In fact, he goes... Like we behemoths like to say, from preaching to meddling. All right, look at verse 3. Let the husband render unto the wife due benevolence. I like the words of the King James Version. They don't say much at all. Let the husband render unto the wife due benevolence. Now that may just be nice. Bring a tea and coffee and all that. Not in the context. Let the husband render unto the wife due benevolence, and likewise also the wife and the husband. See here? Equality, mutuality. Not one more than the other. Quality. Simply put, Paul is saying, in the marriage relationship, there must be mutual, voluntary response to the meeting of the sexual needs of spouses. That's all he's saying. In the marriage relationship, there must be mutual voluntary response to the meeting of the sexual need of spouses. That's how each, mouth, how each spouse glorifies God in the body. That's what Paul is saying. Don't lose that connection. Don't lose that connection. That's how a spouse glorifies God in the body. His body, her body. By being available to meet the sexual needs of a spouse. Neither the husband or the wife has priority over the other in the bedroom. It is a mutual thing here. Each other's body belongs to the other. None has the exclusive rights or control over the body when it comes to this marriage responsibility. It is not only their own body, their body is our body. I call this the paradox of mutual exclusivity. My body is mine, but it's not. Your body is yours, but it's not. Now follow along. Paul is teaching us 
a theology of the body and how the body of the Christian husband and wife is to be used for the glory of God in the bedroom. It's amazing what the Bible deals with, hey? Neither the husband or the wife, I say, has priority over the other. A husband's body is not only his, but his wife, and vice versa. Whatever is done, what, what, now listen carefully, whatever is done when it comes to sexual activity must be by mutual agreement. Paul emphasizes responsibilities rather than rights. See, the men especially like to talk about rights. Paul talks about responsibilities. And so here's how I expand this verse in my own paraphrase. Verse 4. Neither spouse has exclusive rights to either give or withhold their body when it comes to spousal satisfaction of God-given sexual needs. Each share an equal responsibility in making themselves available to one another. No unilateral decision to engage in spousal sexual fasting is permissible. Do you, do you know what I'm saying? If we are going to use our bodies for the glory of God when it comes to sexual relations, we, have no, we do not have the right to make the decision that I'm going on a sexual fast. That's what he's saying. Now again, I want to emphasize equality and mutuality are emphasized. Headship and submission are marginalized when it comes to the bedroom. Did you hear that? This is no, according to Paul, the bedroom is no place for the husband to say, I the head at home, you got to do what I say. Mm -mm, not in the bedroom, not according to this passage. Mutuality. Equality when it comes. Verse 5 now, King James. Defraud ye not one the other, except it be with consent for a time, that ye may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again, that Satan tempt you not for your incontinency. And that's another powerful passage here. This is quite a verse. In fact, this is so powerful. Let's take it phrase by phrase. He begins, defraud ye not one the other. Now, what does defraud mean? Defraud means to steal, to thief, to deprive someone of something that is rightfully theirs. Paul is therefore commanding Christian couples to stop stealing or depriving each other of what? Of sexual satisfaction and gratification in a marriage relationship. That's what he's talking about. This is something that each spouse, notice this now, I'll tell you so you all can get mad. This is something that each spouse owes the other spouse. It doesn't belong to you exclusively. It belongs to your mate. To withhold 
or not give to them is Stephen. Now we laugh at this, but if you believe the Bible, this is scripture teaching. Look at verse 5. This is my paraphrase. Don't thief. The sexual fulfillment that rightly belongs to your mate by refusing to grant him or her what is an essential core element of the marriage relationship. When you do, you're teething. Not only that, you're using the temple of the Holy Spirit in a way it was not designed to be used by a marriage partner. That's why Paul implies that's what the temple prostitutes were doing. They were taking that which exclusively belonged to God and to legitimate spouses. The spouses who were giving it away was also guilty of handling stolen goods. That's what happens when we commit adultery. We're handling stolen goods. And anybody who shares in that, the married person, they are handling stolen goods. Now, theologically speaking, maybe we should call the forcing of a spouse to have sexual relations spousal armed sexual robbery. Paul then gives some exceptions to the rule that would make withholding your body from your mouth spiritually legal. He gives some guidelines. And he says, now if you do this, you won't be stealing. I call these divine rules for spousal sexual fasting. Number one, it must be by mutual agreement. Notice it says, except it be with consent for a time. I want you to notice again the emphasis on equality and mutuality. It must be by mutual agreement. No unilateral decision. No eyes the head of the family. Mutual agreement. Not only that. Second, it must be for an agreed period of time that must be arrived at before you decide to do it. In other words, it is not a permanent arrangement. It is not a permanent arrangement made by unilateral decision. Look at the text. Third, it says that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer. In other words... When you do have sexual fasting with your mate, it must be for a spiritual reason. Now that's a heavy one. It says what? That you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer. Now that says that in the text? And fasting and prayer is what? A spiritual act. Isn't that right? All right. Remember now, put it in context. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. In other words... Divine services are rendered here. Divine services are rendered here. Now I'm sure that 
hermeneutical principles, principles of Bible study, will allow us to universalize this principle and perhaps to include all legitimate medical, psychological, or physical reasons as well. In other words, the bottom line is, as far as Paul is concerned, the only reason why husband and wife should not be engaged in sexual relations is if there's a, a very, very good reason for not doing so, spiritually speak, and whatnot. Paul is very clear here, but he, and we'll look at it in a moment, but he gives a fourth one. Fourth condition for withholding sexual gratification from our mate time to time. This time he gives a reason for it. He says, and come together again. Now that doesn't mean to shake hands. That doesn't mean to have a cup of tea. Because they're not, not talking about that in this passage. He's talking about sexual relations. And come together again that Satan tempt you not for your un, for incontinency. Now, this fourth condition is that sexual fasting must be resumed as quickly as possible. This must be a part of the mutual agreement to enter into a time of sexual fasting. The reason is to avoid falling to Satan's sure temptation to cause you to commit adultery. That's why one of the advices he's going to give to the single person Talking about celibacy, say, one good reason to get married is to put the fire out. Didn't he say that? One good reason to get married is to put the fire. In other words, don't burn. We'll talk about that later. Now, Paul means because of a lack of self-control. That's what that word means here. Lack of self-control, meaning, as Paul says late in the chapter, sexual burning causes individuals sometimes to commit fornication or adultery. Now, it is strongly implied here that the sexual needs of spouses are natural and God-given. It's not anything that is dirty. It's not anything that is abnormal. It is a part of the human being, being a human being. Paul is very clear on that, it seems to me. But he's also clear that these needs must be met only within the marriage relationship. To meet them outside of the marriage relationship is sin. And for a Christian, it's using the body of Christ, the temple of the Holy Spirit, in a sacrilegious manner. Paul is saying that the meeting of these needs is to be a regular, normal, ongoing experience. In other words, saying no is abnormal unless mutually agreed upon. Saying no is abnormal in a marriage relationship unless mutually agreed upon. So, here's my expanded paraphrase of that passage. Four. As paradoxical as it may sound, when it comes to sexual relations, the wife's body belongs to her husband as well as to her. And likewise, the husband's body belongs to his wife as well as to him. They share an equal mutual sexual ownership of their bodies, which in the final analysis belong to God. He has the sovereign right to tell you how it is to be used 
for Christ. That's what he's saying. He has the right, and that's what he's saying. Verse 5, Therefore, neither spouse is to steal what belongs to the other by withholding their body from the other, unless it is by mutual agreement. And even then, it should only be for a brief period of time. And then, only for the purpose of spending time with God or something that is equally legitimate. They should then resume normal, expected, consensual sexual relations before Satan has the opportunity to tempt them to commit adultery because of even mutually agreed upon spousal sexual fasting. In other words, if you fast too long, it can still cause trouble. Now let me give you another expanded translation in view of the ongoing discussion concerning making spousal rape a criminal act. You'll read that, aren't you? Paul addresses that here. Now with that in mind, let me give you a paraphrase of these verses. This is the idea of sexual fasting and all of this now under, under mutual agreement and so on. It would also prevent possible spousal sexual abuse by one or the other spouses resorting to undue force or pressure to have his or her sexual needs met as designed by God. Christian spouses should never resort to such extreme measures. That is a gross misuse and desecration of the temple of the Holy Spirit. If a man does it or a woman does it, it shows that they are psychologically sick and in need of spiritual help as well. When we go to the point of using abuse to have our needs met. Notice carefully, sexual fasting on the part of one mate could lead to either sexual immorality and or spousal sexual abuse. If followed though, God's divine design for spousal sexual satisfaction absolutely avoids and prevents these sinful abnormalities in marriage to occur. Paul is very clear on that. In other words, if Christians follow this, we'd have no trouble with that law at all. Because in the final analysis, Paul says the law is not made for believers anyway. The law is made for sinners. Very wrong. The law is not for believers. The law is for sinners. Those who break the law. Now Paul gives a disclaimer as he closes the passage out. This is what he says in verse 6. And this is the passage that a lot of people, uh, women especially, now I'm not picking on you, but this is true. This is by experience. This is what they use to get out of the implications here. But I speak this by permission and not of commandment. See you? This is not divinely inspired. This is Paul. This, this is male Chauvin's talking. This is nothing to do with the word of God. Well, because of time, let me give you what I believe Paul is saying here. And this follows the understanding of many Bible teachers as well. Paul is saying, however, let me make one thing clear. I am advising this period of sexual fasting, that's what he's talking about, as the prerogative of an apostle of Jesus Christ, not as a direct command from him. He, Jesus didn't deal with it specifically. The normal and expected thing to do is for spouses to continue to enjoy their sexual experience on an ongoing basis as mutually desired by them. That's what he's saying. But then he makes another personal statement in verse 7. 
For I would that all men were even as I myself. But every man has his proper gift of God, one after this manner and another after that. Again, let me give you a paraphrase of the passage to show you what I believe it is teaching. However, personally speaking, I would prefer that everyone remain single and celibate as I am. That would save you all kinds of problems. But this is not for me to decide. Everyone has to live according to their particular gifting from God, whether it be celibacy or marriage. The strong implication then is that God enables us to live according to his directives and desires in whatever situation or calling he may choose to put us in. So, let me give you some principles here derived from this passage. One, this passage teaches that sexual desires for the opposite sex are God-given. Two, these desires are only to be fulfilled within the marriage relationship. Three, marriage is God's divine method for avoiding sexual immorality. Four, spouses have a mutual responsibility to provide sexual fulfillment of their mate and not to steal from them what is rightfully theirs. Five, sexually speaking, spouses' bodies belong first to God, then to their mate, and finally to themselves. God gives husband and wife instructions as to how they are to use their body in marriage for the glory of God. Six, spouses must treat the body of their mate as their own body because it is, and also as the body of Christ is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Because it is. Now, in the discussion going on concerning marital rape, I've heard Christian men on the radio saying that they have the right to demand anything from their spouse when it comes to the sexual life. This passage condemns that. This passage does not agree with that at all. All right? Now, we're going to be looking later on at Paul's teaching with the husband in Ephesians chapter 4. And he says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Right? That's the kind of an attitude a husband is to have towards his wife and his wife's body. You see? Our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Our body is a part of him. And the body is to be treated with respect, with dignity, and with an attitude of worship. That's what Paul says. And we're going to, later on, we're going to see here that Paul puts the sexual act of a husband and wife on a level of spiritual activity. Now, I can tell you now, not too many of us look at that act as a spiritual thing. All physical, all natural. But God looks at it differently. In fact, and I close with this, when you go to the book of Song of Solomon's, one of the greatest delight that God has is to watch a couple who has kept themselves pure making love for the first time on the honeymoon. Read Song of Solomon, you'll see that. Where God says, go at it. We have to see this relationship the same way God does if we're going to show that we've been redeemed by the blood of Christ and that 
Faith in him makes a difference in the way we live. Bow with me as we close, please. Father, thank you for your word. We know that it's a very difficult passage for many, but we pray that you might, by your Holy Spirit, cause your word, the seed of your word, to find good ground in the hearts of the hearers today. And may we seek to glorify God in our bodies, even in our marriage relationships. And all of God's people said, Amen.